Uh, well, I look forward to tonight. We're going to, it's going to, um, you know, tonight we're going to talk about prophecy. And I'll tell you, it's going to be a little different. Kind of we'll start off a little differently tonight um, because I think the, the whole issue of prophecy is one that's, you know, there's a lot of confusion about, about um, just kind of this whole issue, not only apocalyptic, which we'll get to at the end, but then kind of the bigger issue of prophecy and prophets and all that. It's, it's one that um, there's a lot of confusion, and a lot of that confusion can kind of lead to some dysfunction. And, um, and so, so I look forward to it. But we will start off kind of a little different, I'll let you know, where we'll kind of look at a bigger picture of prophecy and, and, uh, and prophets and all that, and then we'll really start to get into some of the specific roles of of uh, guidelines of prophecy in general, and then and more apocalyptic, uh, more specifically. Um, but good, but let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the chance that we have to spend this evening. I thank you for the chance to be able to spend this time, uh, again, looking at your word. I thank you for the privilege that we've had over these, over these couple months, looking at principles that would help us in our own study and understanding of the Bible. I thank you for the commitment of each person that's here, their commitment to come and want to invest this time uh, to grow in their understanding of, of your word, to grow, to become workmen who uh, need not to be ashamed, but learn to rightly handle your word of truth. I pray your blessing in our time and our discussion this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, are the, are the, are the, uh, are, I know you're loading it. Are they on down here? Okay. Okay, so we'll... Um, they will come up in a minute, the, the PowerPoint. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm stepping in some dangerous territory here. All right, let's start off with talking about um, the introduction is the prophet and prophecy. And, um, and so, again, when we talk about prophecy, I think it's important not to just talk about prophecy, but there's some confusion here about prophecy and prophets. And, um, and so a, if we talk about, you know, again, the prophet specifically, a prophet is a spokesman for God who declares God's will to the people. Um, even if you look at the meaning of the word, it means to call or proclaim, um, you know, to be the one that, that, you know, that again, his job is to call and proclaim or to be one who is appointed. And, um, you know, but, but if we understand it, you can say, okay, but you know, that's the study of it, but what do they do? Um, you know, A is the, the Old Testament office of prophet. And these were proclaimers. So the, it's the Old Testament office. These were proclaimers or messengers of God's word. They proclaimed God's message through both promise and warning. They dealt with many aspects of the current life of the people and the things in the future. Um, they were used of God to examine, to test, or, 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 and, um, or examine, prove, or test the people. Um, let me go and read a passage from Jeremiah 6. Here we go. Thank you. Uh, I have made your tester of metals amongst my people that you may know and test their ways. They are stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The, the bellows fear, blow fiercely. Uh, the lead is consumed by the fire. And in vain the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called, for the Lord's, Lord has rejected them. And uh, so what they would do is that they would proclaim the inevitable judgment as well as judgment to be avoided. And so you see this with a lot of the prophecy, that there are times that they 
Um, you know, we'll talk about something that's inevitable. This has happened. This is going to happen. And there are other times that they would warn and say, if you don't do this, then this is going to happen. Um, they, in a sense, acted as both watchmen and as intercessors. So there are times that they watched and they said this, but they, you know, they in a sense represented the people to God and, and at times coming back representing the, the, the you know, or, the, or, or God to the people and also people to God. Um, now here's where one of the things that I thought was important to mention, because again, this is a place where it gets really confusing. The New Testament office of, apo- of, of apostle and the gift of prophet. Um, when we, yeah, I get into this all the time when people talk about New Testament prophecy and what that was. And here's what I think we, we mix up the whole idea of office of apostle and gift of prophecy. In the Old Testament, you were talking about an office of prophet. In the New Testament, when we're talking about those, especially who wrote the Bible, who in the Old Testament were those who wrote the Bible, they were those who had the office of prophet. In the New Testament, who were the ones that God used to write um, uh, you know, the, the Bible? Those who held the office of apostle. Not those who had the gift of prophecy. And there's a difference between the Old Testament office of prophet and the New Testament gift of prophecy. A prophet could be anyone who is an authorized spokesman for God. Uh, any direct revelation from God could be called prophecy. But since all scripture is divine authorship, the whole scripture could be called the prophetic word. Every author, in a sense, is a prophet. However, there are some passages that are written in prophetic form and others that are different types of literature. Um, but in that, all the Old Testament scripture were, was written by those who held the office of prophet. And this was the qualification that was used of God. However, in the New Testament, the office was changed from off, a prophet to apostle. A key passage in this is in Hebrews chapter 1. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom appointed heir of all things, and through whom he's also created the world. And so what people would say is that the, you know, what we'd believe is that, yes, God spoke in the Old Testament through prophets and the New Testament through his son, or through, and then through apostles, all of which had their authority directly related back to, to, to Christ. So they had seen the risen Lord. That's where Paul repeatedly talks about his authority as an apostle is that he saw the, the risen Lord in an you know, untimely manner. Uh, so he was unique as an apostle. And, but the idea here is that there's an office of, of apostle that is kind of the equivalent of the Old Testament office of prophet. Um, now that's different from the New Testament gift of prophecy. Now we're not going to do a whole thing on spiritual gifts here. But I think it's important, whatever you understand the spiritual gift of prophecy is or was, or whether, it's, you know, whether it exists or whether it doesn't, the, the New Testament gift of prophecy was always very, very different than the Old Testament office of prophet. Um, so when we read of prophecy in the New Testament, it's, it's a spiritual gift, not an office. And there's a big di- difference. And, and a lot of people make a mistake on this because they, you know, when they take the word of prophet and they kind of lump it all together. And, and you know, many of you have had, may have had this kind of experience. So you have people that will come out and they'll talk about, well, I have the gift of prophecy. And next thing you know, they're talking like they're an Old Testament prophet. Um, and, you know, and, and even, you know, I know people that will, 
even talk about they have this cloak of prophecy going back to Elijah, and they'll have, I mean, all kinds of stuff that is just, you know, that's really a mess that's mixing this up, or people that will start to claim to have prophetic words and talk about the future, and basically, again, kind of confusing the office of prophet with the gift of prophet. In the New Testament, the office of prophet, which is divine revelation, written in scripture, is the equivalent of the New Testament office of apostle. Um, in the Old Testament, New Revelation was limited to those who held the office of prophet. The last person that we, you know, living person that uh, held that office was Malachi. Uh, or for those of us who think that he might have had Italian roots, is Malachi. Um, and uh, in the New Testament, that New Revelation, inerrant New Revelation was limited to those who held the office of apostle. Um, the Old Testament standard of those who held the office was unyielding, and basically, if you got a prophecy wrong, you're, you're killed. Um, in the New Testament, what you have is the office of apostles is the one that seems to have that standard. Those, the gift of prophecy never had that. Uh, now, what you've got to realize is that what that's saying is that whatever you understand about prophecy, what we have in the Bible is written in the, you know, written in the Bible um, God's inerrant revelation is ceased. You know, that you don't have, you do not have prophets that are speaking today that have the ability, thus saith the Lord, um, you know, that are kind of giving these new words of prophecy. Um, no, that was limited to the, you know, Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. Now, I will say that, you know, somebody would say, well, does God still speak today? I will, I will say, there's a sense that however we understand it, does God still speak? Does he still, in a sense, he does. But this is the key difference. I, you know, I wouldn't say that God doesn't, you know, well, God spoke inerrantly, then he speaks, no, whatever God, whenever God speaks, he speaks inerrantly. This is the key, is when you understand the office of apostle and the office of prophet in the Old or New Old Testament, it's not, only, it's not that God spoke inerrantly, it's that God gave them uniquely the ability to hear and interpret and, trans, and, and transmute that message inerrantly. And that's what I think is limited to that office of prophet and that office of apostle. And so when we talk about prophecy, again, it's, you know, I, I, you know in my experience, I've just had way too many people that have gotten into prophecy and start talking about prophecy and that God has given them some kind of prophecy, and it really is, is a mess. Uh, so that's kind of like, I know that's not necessarily interpreting prophecy, but I thought it was important to mention. Um, so when we then talk about prophecy, there are two aspects of the prophetic ministry and message. And again, this is going to be true of prophets, but it's also going to be true of prophecy in the Bible. Uh, when you think of a prophet, they, there were two aspects. First of all was uh, foretelling and when you think of that, that's basically the, the ability to tell the future, to say something, you know, a prophetic message that was um, about something that hasn't happened yet, some kind of warning, some kind of, you know, blessing, whatever it would be. The second part is forthtelling. And this is the, um, the ability to, you know, to basically take what God has revealed, in a sense, to speak it out into the culture, into the community, um, you know, and... and when you look at that, what you've got to understand is even when you, when you study most of prophecy in the Bible, most of it is foretelling much more than it is foretelling. 
And so when you look at it, there's, there, are, there are times that it say, like, you know, God's going to you know, do this, and here's a judgment, or here's an event that's going to happen. And we tend to think of prophecy almost, you know, well, we think of it primarily as the foretelling, as the, you know, these future events. But even when you look at the vast majority of prophecy throughout the Bible, it's much more foretelling. Um, and so, you know, there's this idea of God speaking to the culture, speaking to the community, um, and that's where I'm, I'm going to kind of step out a little bit here again, just kind of introduction away from if the vast majority of prophecy, even in the Bible, is foretelling, it's interesting that when we talk about prophecy, we think almost exclusively of foretelling. And whatever the gift of prophecy it was or is, if we interpret it primarily as foretelling, suddenly the gift of prophecy is something vastly different and what prophecy means and what it looks like. Because what is that? Prophecy is then the ability to take that which God has revealed, to study it and understand the culture, and then to be able to speak God's truth to the culture in a way that, that, that's relevant and it, it, by God's grace that is convicting to the people in the culture. That's a very, very different gift. But if you study most of the, uh, most of the Bible, most of prophetic literature, most of it is much more in, in forth, uh, forthtelling. Um, now, both of them speak God's word to, uh, to, to God's people. Uh, in foretelling, the prophet speaks God's word that has not yet been to that time previously revealed, while foretelling, the prophet speaks God's word that had been previously revealed. And so, again, the foretelling is, you know, here's something new. Here's a direct word about something in the future, something that hadn't been revealed. Most of foretelling is, okay, here's what, here's what we know about God so it's speaking what has already been revealed and applying it to the culture and to the people. Um, all right, so that's some introduction. That's kind of like not really, you know, just come introductory thoughts. So, so I, 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 could, I could probably open it up for questions, but we might be there all this evening. So it's, it's, it's some ideas that are important to think through. And, and again, many of us have been around... You know, I've just run into way too many people that get confused on this issue and, and get down some really uh, unhealthy tracks because they don't understand these, these issues. Okay, so let's talk about, about the prophet and prophetic writings. Um, when we talk about prophetic literature, we're talking about a special application of the terms prophet and prophecy and prophet. Um, predictive prophecy in a special way bears the mind of div- mark of divine origin. Um, and you, there is a lot of scripture that is predictive prophecy. While all the Old Testament was, was written by those who held the office of prophet, not the Old Testament would be cons- all the Old Testament would be considered prophetic literature. So again, you have Samuel was a prophet, but First and Second Samuel would not be considered prophetic literature. Um, it's it's historical narrative literature. Um, and while the New Testament was not written by men who held the office of prophet, it was held by the, written by those who held the office of apostle, likewise, there's part of the New Testament that is prophetic in, in its nature, so that's prophetic literature. Um, so, you know, so again, there's a little bit of kind of putting it all together. Now, even in that, what you've got to realize is that there are times that the Bible speaks of all of the Bible as being prophetic, because there's a sense that everything in the Bible is God speaking through his people. So in a sense, it is all direct, it is revelation from God and it is all 
forth telling. So for example, um, in 2 Peter chapter 1, 19, uh, Peter says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, dawns and the morning stars in your hearts, knowing that first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes about for someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Probably the best passage that describes the process of, of you know, God's inspiration. But you notice that it, it says no prophecy of scripture. Now it's not just talking about the prophetic books, it's talking about everything. That's first Peter or Second Peter uh, 1, 19 through 21. And so that's, you know, that's not just talking about prophetic books, it's talking about all of the Bible. But there are parts that are specifically prophetic. And, and, and if we look at that, you say in the Old Testament, you're looking at the major and minor prophets. In the New Testament, Matthew 24 is in that one section in the, in, in, um, in the life of Jesus, in the gospel, where Jesus really focuses on prophecy, 2 Thessalonians, and then Revelation. So those would, would, would be considered prophetic in their, in their, in their nature. Um, now again, you know, when you look at especially the major and minor prophets, much of that isn't, it isn't all predictive. All was divine revelation, but much of it was foretelling, not all of it was foretelling. Um, but when God did communicate predictive prophecy, we must ask why. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You know, again, this is vital to understand prophecy. Why is it that God gives us prophecy? Why does God give us, you know, things that are in the future? Um, you know, it's not just to tell us what would happen. There's a reason. Um, you know, it's, you know, so, you know, you've got to say, why? What is, what is the purpose of predictive prophecy? Um, you know, I'm going to kind of touch on this and we'll kind of unpack some of these things as we go along. Um, and, and again, some of these things you see kind of ideas from the very beginning keep kind of folding in. Number one, the chief purpose is to affect the conduct of those who hear the prophecy. You know, so when you look at that, you say, why is he giving it? Because he's trying to, you know, God's trying to speak to people. And he's saying, okay, here's something in the future. And he's seeking to change the behavior of the people that are, you know, you know, here's something in the future, and he's trying to get us to change. I mean, probably the ultimate example of that would be Jonah. You know, that God spoke a predictive prophecy as a warning, and you see the whole city repent, and you see a radical change in the behavior of the people. Um, you know, so that's one of the purposes. The other purpose is um, met only after the prophets are fulfilled, and that's to build faith. And, and so, you know, you have this one hand that it's saying, okay, if if we're looking at the prophecy and it's speaking to us going forward, the purpose is always to change behavior. It's always to say it's teaching us something about God, about, you know, about what's going to happen. It's trying to get us to change behavior. The other purpose is there's much prophecy that we can now look backward. And so we see, especially example, the prophecies of Jesus. Or we could see prophecies even about the end times. And you could look at you know, Daniel and the prophecies that are fulfilled. And all these things are that we can look backward and, and they build our faith. Um, why? Because we see that God is in charge. We see that God is, you know, that God knows all things. We see that, you know, that, and it gives us confidence that not only that God has been in charge of the past, he's in charge of the future, and it gives us confidence in, in, 
studying and applying the prophecy going forward from here on in. Um, now, again, a lot of, lot of introduction. Okay, the nature, we'll get a little deeper here. The nature of the prophetic pa- uh, message. Um, okay, and this is where it starts to really get into some of the principles. Okay, number one, whether the prophet is discussing the present, uh, past, or future events, the prophet is always seeking to make God the most genuine reality that men can know or experience. So again, so whether it's foretelling or forthtelling, whether we're looking at prophecies that are before us or whether we're now looking back in Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled, um, no matter what happens, the purpose is always to make God the most genuine reality that we can know experience. Um, you know, the whole idea is to say, God is in charge of all things. And so we're living life, and we kind of, when you think of prophecy, what, are, what is it really saying? Is we live life, and we can easy, start to easily live life. We think that God isn't in charge. We're kind of, you know, we're uh, victims of fate, or we're victim, you know, we make our own way to go. And, and that's, that's basically one of the dangers we have. What is prophecy? Prophecy is saying that God is in charge of everything. And God is in charge of everything so that when we look at this, we realize that we're living out God's story. And suddenly it gives a different perspective. It gives a totally different perspective of life. And, and so whether we're facing uncertainty, no, we know that God is certain there behind it. Whether, we, you know, when we look at, at future things and warnings, or, you know, we know that God is there behind it. Um, it, it. It's always to build our faith. It's always to make God the most genuine reality. Um, we see God in our past we know the promise of God in our future so we can trust our God today. I mean, that's really the idea. We see him in the past. We know him in the future so we can trust him where we're at today. B, whether the prophet is discussing the present, the past, or future events, the purpose of the message is always to impact the reader's current faith and conduct. And here's what, again, you've got to, this is really important when we understand how we sometimes study um, prophetic, especially in a future prophecy. He doesn't tell us things just so that we can know for interest's sake. I mean, if the goal, now the thing is, is that especially when you get revelation, it's really interesting. And it'd be really interesting to find out and to figure out, okay, who's the Antichrist? And when is, you know, that'd be really fun, you know, and it's interesting. But what we've got to realize is that God hasn't given us anything so that we would know just so that we're, we know more that it's because it's interesting. Um, if we ever studied prophecy and there's not an immediate application, we totally miss the purpose of, of, of the prophetic writing. It always is about, you know, making God the ultimate reality, changing our mind, changing our faith, changing our, our behavior. It's always supposed to be practical. And if we miss that, then we miss what prophecy is. Um, it, and it's something that's there to help us, to help us see our current situation, to give us faith going forward, to give us confidence going back. Now, that really leads to the, the question, you know, because when we talk about prophecy, why is it that the, most, the future elements of prophecy are the most attractive? The, the, the fact is, is that I was, talk, I was talking to somebody um, you know, just recently, and they were saying about, you know, they were at 
this one church and they had this guy that um, did a class in prophecy and, you know, and they had like 100 people coming and it was, you know, and, and the fact is, I always know you could do a class in prophecy and you'll have a bunch of people that will come. <laughs> and it's true. You know, it's, it's always a good seller. It's always, you know, it's always interesting. And, and you say, I'm gonna, I'll even ask you, Beyond the whole idea of it's interesting, is there any other reason? I'm gonna, I'll ask you to think about this. Why it's interesting, but are there any other reasons that, that we're so drawn to future prophecy? We want to interpret God's movement in our own times. Okay. Yeah, we want to know. We want to kind of understand how God's working in our times. And, and that's reassuring. Um, is there any other reason that you think? Yeah. yeah, that we think we, and you know, and it's kind of like if I can figure it out, then I can, you know, I can make sure that I'm ready for whatever's going to happen. Um, Those people are afraid of the future. Yeah, yeah, we're, that's a great point. We're afraid of the future. I think it reveals, I mean, for me, my interest in it is because I feel like it helps me know God better because it lays out very clearly what God's opinion is in certain scenarios, so it's sort of like getting better acquainted with who God is <laughs> and his personality and how he reacts to certain situations because in the prophecies it pretty well spells out why this is happening and why this is predicted. Yeah, so you do see something about God and his character. That's definitely true. Yeah. <laughs> the, the bomb's ticking and it's ready to go off. You better. Yeah, I remember the old. I remember the old. What was it? You know, the old movie. You know, you know, wish we were all ready or what was? You know, I forget even the name of the movie now. But back in the '70s, and it was all about, you know, that idea. You know, it's kind of like here's end times, and you know, we need to all be ready. And um, I, I think there's, I think there's maybe some negative reasons too that we're drawn towards it. And I think there's a lot of positive ones, but I think there's some things that maybe we're less aware of ourselves or we have to be, at least be careful. Um, and, and actually, there's some things that I think that are warned about in Scripture. Um, the, I mean, one is that there's a sense that when we know these things, there's a little bit of conf, not a, confidence, maybe arrogance. You know, it's kind of like, I want to know. I want to, if I can figure out the things that nobody else has figured out for 2,000 years, you know, I feel pretty good about myself. And, and there's a sense that we, we want to know. We want to know, we want to know for good reasons, but there's sometimes maybe it's not all good. The other reason, too, that I think that is, that I think is really concerning is that a lot of times, I tell you, I've been to a lot of classes and prophecy, and a lot of what I've what I hear, it's not convicting at all. You know, it's like, I'm, usually what I hear, most of the things, it's like, well, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to be happening. And it's not really saying, okay, how is it revealing something in my heart? Most of the time, it's, it's kind of speculation. Most of the stuff that I've heard, maybe I haven't heard the better, better teachers. But, but most of the people I hear, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's more... 
um, you know, it's more, you know, speculation and thoughts about God and, you know, and, and we don't necessarily walk out and say, okay, here's how we, you know, here's how God's convicting me. Here's where I'm wrong. Here's where God's pointing out my sin. Here's where God's pointing out. It's like, really, it's interesting to know. I walk out not convicted feeling, you know, okay, God's really speaking to me. I, I feel, I walk out feeling where well, I'm confident. I know what other people didn't know. There's a warning in First uh, Timothy chapter 3 that I think really speaks to where we have to be careful on this issue. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 3. Um, let me go ahead and read it, Verse Timothy 1, starting in 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, I'm going to stop there because it's, we read that and you think, okay, he was warning people not to teach false doctrine. And in fact, I've read, I've studied this in some um, depth and a lot of, some commentaries even will talk about what the false doctrines are, Gnosticism, this or that. Well, here's where you go back and scripture interprets scripture. It tells you what the warnings are right there. Now, it says false doctrines, but look at how he defines that. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship that is from God by faith. So what he seems to be saying here is that the false doctrine isn't necessarily false teaching about who Jesus is or about salvation or, you know, the things that we think of false doctrine. But there's a danger of false doctrine that are teaching things that aren't necessarily wrong as much as they're irrelevant. They're, they're speculations and genealogies and things that promote, you know, uh, you know myths and promote speculations. And, and, and it's not even saying that, he's not saying that they're wrong, but they're, we're speculating about whether it's right or not. And look at what he says. Okay, this pulls us back, verse five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain people, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion. He's saying, okay, this is what right teaching is. Right teaching, he doesn't, he doesn't establish the theology of, okay, well, you know, and again, that's all important. The other places, he does do this. But, but here, he's not focusing on right theology about the deity of Christ or about salvation. He says, no, the thing that they're getting wrong and they need to come back to is that the aim is that when we study that we have love that comes from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. And, and people have wandered from these, from the practical application of saying, okay, here's what God's word is, here's how it's convicting me, here's how it's speaking to me, here's how my life should be different. They've wandered from these and have wandered into vain discussion. They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And that's the concern that I have, is that sometimes when we get into prophecy, we can kind of, it's really attractive, it's comfortable, because we can spend time talking about things that are, you know, not, not about stepping on my toes, about am I more loving, and do I have a pure heart, do I have a sincere faith, and, but I'm speculating, and I'm thinking, what about this, and what about, which, you know, which is really safe, it's really comfortable. It, it, you know, I, I walk out feeling better about myself because I haven't had anything pointed out. Um, and so I think that's one of the dangers that we have, that when we look at this and when we say, how do we study prophecy? We've got to be really careful um, you know, that, we, that we don't dive so much into the predictive prophecy and kind of, we've got to be at least aware of our susceptibility of kind of going the wrong direction with this.
Now, we also must remember um, the restrictive perspective of the prophet. And again, this is something that is of general principle, is that in, when you see, the, actually the Bible says this numerous places, that when God spoke to his prophets, he didn't give them unlimited vision. And there are certain times that he spoke to them and he gave them revelation about things that they only partly understood. Look what it says in 1 Peter chapter 10, uh, 1, verse 10. Um, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was uh, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that now have been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, um, things into which the angels looked or longed to look. And so what it's saying here is that there were prophets that spoke, and, and, and it's very clear he's saying about, especially in the Old Testament, you know, they prophesied about things, and they tried to understand it, and they understood part of it, but they didn't understand it fully. And again, we're going to come back to this later on, but the idea that if this is how we can look back and understand those prophecies then, why would we think that the prophecies that haven't been fulfilled now would be radically different in their nature? So we can say unquestionably the prophecies then that have been fulfilled, the prophets didn't fully understand it. God revealed to them some, but he didn't understand full, and they were researching and trying to understand it. And they realized that the things that they said now are, you know, we have the full benefit because they've been fulfilled. Now, let's even look at a sim- an example of that, okay? Um, there's, there's one example that I think we can see that the early church understood certain prophetic words a certain way that just from this little glimpse, we can see that in trying to understand it, they interpret it imperfectly at best. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, with them in the air, or in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Now here you have Paul saying, we who are still alive. And it actually is something that you see pretty much pretty consistently throughout the, through the old, early, uh, you know, through the early part of the New Testament, is that many of them believed that the prophecies about Jesus returning, they thought it was going to be a matter of you know, a couple of years. And you see this idea actually numerous times. You go to, go to first Peter, or Second Thessalonians 3, uh, there was a problem that people weren't working, and one of the reasons that they weren't working is they figured, hey, Jesus is coming back. You know, you know, why should I work? Why should I build a business? Why should I be responsible? And so you had, even in this case, Paul. When you look at 1 Corinthians 4, you have Paul himself now speaking word of prophecy, in a sense, writing God's word, but his perspective is, we who are still alive. Now, God had revealed certain things to him about end times, about the return but even you see in Paul, his perspective was limited. 
And again, so there, aren't, there, there are very few things that we can see that very clearly because most of the things are still future. Um, but this is one where you see that there was a perspective that they had. There was, a lim- there was a restrictive perspective of the prophet. And when we understand, when we study of all that, we, especially going forward, the apocalyptic stuff, we've got to understand that. With me, any, I, I should stop and see any... any I know I've been talking a lot. Yeah. And I hear that, I think, yeah, all my life we've heard it's going to be soon. Well, it's going to be sooner than it was last year, obviously. But uh, I, I, think, I think it's a mistake to live our life thinking that's going to happen tomorrow when it could be several years from now or 100 years from now. Yeah, I, I know, you know, I've, I've learned to, to believe in the imminent return of Christ, which means that I have the hope that he could return at any moment. And the, you know, the hope and expectation in a sense, but at the same time I live as if he won't return until after my grandkids' death. And so I've got to live with the hope and expectation and the fer- in, in, in a sense fervency of it might be tomorrow, but at the same point I've got to live with the responsibility to say am I, am I being responsible for my lifetime and investing in my kids in such a way that it's even with their kids so that I'm, you know, I'm passing my, my faith to the third and fourth generation. And there's a balance there. But again, part of that is, is that if you don't understand this balance, you know, when, you know, there have been many people like in Second, Second Thessalonians where they're not working because they think, oh, Jesus is coming back. And that's happened numerous times ever since then as well. But people have taken an unbalanced perspective prophecy and come up with some really unbalanced um, life decisions that, um, you know, that are based on a wrong understanding of, the, of, of how prophecy works. So... Yeah. Well, you know, and, and a lot of that, you're right, it, they said in the 70s it was really big. And I think there were a couple reasons, you know. Um, some of that is, is it seems like whenever there's, especially in the Mideast, there's, you know, I remember back when you had the Gulf Wars, you had all kinds of books that were being written. And, and so whenever there seems to be like a lot of conflict or big things happening in the Middle East, that seems to really stimulate everybody's discuss, you know, interest. And so, you know, you probably remember about, you know, books, especially during the First and Second Gulf War and whether, you know, Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist or whether Russia or, you know, and you had all these people that were trying to put all these pieces together. Um, and then when there seems to be less conflict over there, it seems like we, we kind of lose, you know, it, it, you know, there's no signs that we can read. And, uh, but it seems like we, you know, there were a lot of things going on back in the 70s. And Hal Lindsey was a huge example of that which I'm going to come back to him because he was such a, you know, an interesting, um, you, know, an, you know, his interpretation. I, I remember seeing the movies, reading the books and seeing the movies, and, uh, you know, he was a pretty big guy in prophecy. Well, when we think of prophecy, I'm going to suggest here's some things that I think that are going to maybe go a little bit further as far as the application. I, I believe when we look at prophecy, there is a progressive character of prophecy. Um, and there's several aspects of this that we're going to kind of unpack. Um, you know, mo- we're talking now predictive prophecy. God unfolds his, his message to his time over people. Later revelations often disclose elements that are omitted in the earlier revelations. 
Um, so, you know, so what we realize is that, you know, you have a little bit here and you get a little more and a little more. And, and what we have in the sum total may not be a complete thing. Probably one of the best examples of this is the whole Bible's teaching about Antichrist. And so you think about that in Daniel. You have in Daniel 7, um, you know, the little horn of Daniel, and it seems to be this imperial leader. And then, and then you have in Daniel 9, you know, this religious leader. And then we go to Matthew 24, and you have Jesus talking about the abomination of, uh, abomination of the holy place. In 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, it's the lawless one. And then in Daniel, uh, Revelation 13, we kind of have this expansion of Daniel 7 and this whole idea of the horn of Daniel. And, um, and so there's kind of this progressive element where we have certain things and we have a progressive... Now, but here's what we've got to realize, that again, if there's a restrictive element, we have more, but we probably don't have everything. Um, and in that, we've got to realize that it's just as dangerous to put more in the Bible than is there, than remove anything that he did reveal. So there's two dangers that we have. There's one to say, I'm adding things that he didn't reveal, and I'm kind of filling in the gaps that he left. Or the other danger is that we, you know, we kind of, kind of ignore it and don't, you know, don't take seriously what he has revealed. Um, and so in that, you know, one of the things that, again, you come back with prophecy is that, you, you know, I think one of the principles in prophecy, when you talk about any issue of theology, we should always hold it with the degree of conviction that is, that is commensurate with the degree of, of certainty in its revelation. And so if you talk to me about the deity of Christ, I mean, I'm gonna, I'll die on that hill. You know, if you talk about how we're saved through Christ alone, again, that's, you know, that's one that you're un, unquestionably uncompromising. We get to some other issues that, you know, you talk about Calvinism or Minionism, or you talk about, you know, uh, you know, some other things that, you know, those are, I have convictions less so, I think, I think some of my convictions on prophecy are pretty far down the line um, because a lot of these things that, again, you know, they're, they're revealed, they're all important, but they're not, you know, they're not always clear. It's a lot of these, you know, it's, you know, what you have in Revelation and what the Bible says about end times is a whole lot less clear than what Paul says about the deity of Christ, about how we're saved. Now, in this, there's, there's a progressive element, and, and part of that is what we're going to call multiple references. Um, and so in this case, in a multiple references, there's an earlier fulfillment that is a more complete, that has a more complete later fulfillment. Um, now let me give you an example of this, which is, I think, a, a really, you know, good one. Um, and that is, again, we kind of mef- mentioned Antichrist, Right? So we see that there is a progressive element in Antichrist. But when you look at Antichrist, there's also not only that multi-reference, but there's times that you have different things that are revealed in certain aspects of those references. So let me take you in another passage that kind of says it differently. Okay, 1 John 2.18, children, and this is the last hour, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. Now, what's interesting is that if you think about this, you say, well, he might be talking about something else. Okay, now, who was it that wrote 1 John? John. 
Okay, who was it that wrote Revelation? John. And so, you know, we might be thinking, okay, he's talking about something different, but if it's the same guy, if it's the guy that, that God used to, you know, through whom he wrote the Revelation, the primary passage of apocalyptic you know, prophecy that we have, future prophecy, and that talks about Antichrist, and here you have him saying, it's the last hour, you've heard the Antichrist is coming, clearly seems to be talking about end times, Antichrist. And so now we have many Antichrists who have come. Therefore, we know this is the last hour. Now, you ever wonder what that means, how that works together? And here's one of the things that when you look at this whole idea of, of how prophecy works, and when you understand kind of this, you know, this, you know, this progressive character, multiple references, that a lot of times when you have certain things that are talking about prophecy, it's talking about not only a future event, but it's talking about the future to the degree that there are possibly multiple references. Clearly, in this case, there are multiple references. That he says, okay, everything I've said about the Antichrist, it's not only the Antichrist has come, the Antichrist is already coming and is here. And, it's, and it's, you think it's, and, you know, we're near the end because the Antichrist will come, but the Antichrist is here, and so therefore we're already near the end. Now, have you ever thought about that, what that means? Now, let me throw out some ideas here. If prophecy is all about a single end event, that if it's all just about the Antichrist that comes at the end time that leads to the, you know, the, to the tribulation, you know, then this is really, really confusing. If prophecy is talking about, when, and actually when the, you know, the Bible talks about end times, end times biblically, are the period all the time from the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the time of Jesus' return. So we are in the end times. When you look at the Bible, the Bible's really clear about that. And so if it's talking about what is gonna happen in the end times, big picture, and the kind of things that are going to happen, it may not be talking about a single reference of a single person at a single period of time, but about a multiple references of the kind of opposition that Satan will throw at the church over the centuries. And so that we may look at what the Bible says about the Antichrist end time tribulation, and in that see something about the way that Satan is going to attack the church over time through different people, through different times, that are going to, in a sense, be shadows of the final one. Does that make sense? Right. Now, now, let me give you an example of how this is so important. Especially World War II, let's say two, World War II Germany. There were many people who looked at World War II Germany and interpreted Hitler to be the Antichrist. Were they wrong? Was he an a Antichrist or the Antichrist? Well, let let me, let me apply it a slightly different way. Many of those people saw him as the Antichrist and then studied the scripture and took hope from what the scripture said in Revelation. Were they wrong? Yeah, that he's not the ultimate 
were they wrong in finding hope from Revelation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Have hope from Revelation? <laughs> were, they hope, were they wrong in applying the Revelation, the story of Revelation, to their own situation? No, because it still requires patient endurance right. on the part of the saints. Yeah, see, the thing is, is that a lot of times we try to figure out, is this the end? Practically, that's irrelevant. <laughs> you know, it really is. I mean, whether Hitler was the end or not, practically it was irrelevant. We're, we're just in the story wherever we're at. And the fact is, whether it's the end or not, or whether we try to figure it out, it, it, you know, if it's the end, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I always feel like, you know, it's, you know, retirement. You know, some, you know, some of you is like, you know, it's like, well, I feel like I retired. You know, practically, when you're retired from ministry, you know, you always know it because God tells you face to face. Until he tells you face to face, you're not retired. He's still got a purpose for you. Um, when it's the end, it's that same type of thing. It's when it's the end, God will tell me face to face. When God looks at me and says, oh, that was the end. I say, okay, that was the end. You know, until then, I just live where I'm at. But what I realize is that I, I, can, I can draw hope from everything that's in, you know, Jews or Jews, Christians, you know, in that period of time, they should have drawn hope and, and applied that. And they weren't wrong. Because all that's not, when you talk about multiple referencing, it's, it's not just a single time, a single event, a single person. It's, it's talking about what's going to happen in the last times. And the way that God, Satan's going to oppose the church, the way that God's going to work in time. And so we find hope in that. Now, now suddenly, you know, it's going to start, when you start to get these things, it starts to change the way that we study because it just there, it's just even starting to suggest, okay, then if all of our study in Revelation is trying to figure out who the Antichrist is and when they ask time, no, that's, that's not the purpose. That's not, it's, it's saying, okay, in the times that I'm at, what are the truths that are speaking to me where I'm at? Um, how do I apply those? And, and that, that kind of gets into this whole idea of the split references. It's a very similar idea. Part of the prophecy might refuse to one future event, part to another. Um, and again, we, the most clear example of this, of, of split references, is Christ, the coming of Christ. And so you have very, very clear um, prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, right? And everybody thought when the coming of the Messiah, they were, all these things were going to happen. And they tended to focus on more of the victorious return, you know, establishing his kingdom. When what we found out is that there was a split reference. There was a first coming in which he fulfilled a number of prophecies, and then there was a second coming. Now, what we have to realize that, again, is that if, what we find there is that, and it's not only there, you see this actually with some of the things that we know of, let's say about, you know, some of Daniel and some of these other prophecies. I mean, you could look at Daniel and you could say, well, the 70 weeks, well, God, 69, you know, we're, you know, it's obviously a pretty split reference because we're still waiting for the last part to come. We've got to recognize that when we look at some of these things with prophecy, it's not only what we can look back and see how these things work then, we've got to acknowledge that there's a possibility that some of these prophecies that aren't yet fully fulfilled still work that way. Does that make sense? Okay, principles for interpreting prophetic passages. I hope this is helpful. I know this is kind of like a little different, but it's, it's such a different topic. Um, 
Okay, first of all, follow the fundamental laws of biblical interpretation. You know, so it's, you start by saying, you, you know, you make a careful, you know, I'll use technical, you know, hist- grammatical historical context analysis, you know, so that you study the meaning of the words, the grammar. You study the historical background of the prophet, the historical. You look for parallel passages. You know, you start with just kind of the basic rules that we spent, you know, spent, uh, you know, that kind of are across the board that we spent the first couple of weeks especially on. Um, then you focus on the particulars of a passage and its message. You know, so you've got to look at that and you've got to say, in a prophetic aspect, you know, does it at times state explicitly to whom or uh, what the statements of the passage refer to? Um, you know, is it predictive or is it, um, you know, didactic? Is it something that, you know, is it foretelling? Is it foretelling? You know, what, you know, get, just because it's in the prophet doesn't mean it's not all the same type. So what is this trying to say? Um, if it's predictive, are the conditions attached? You know, so you have Jonah. So there's a, you know, there's a clear prediction. There's other times that it says, because you've done this, here's the consequence. Is there a multiple or split reference? Um, the, um, there's some, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example uh, of, a, of, a, of a, I think probably a split reference that, I don't know if you study this way, but, but I'd encourage you to look at it. Matthew 24 is again Jesus speaking. It's his, his, the main passage where Jesus really speaks very prophetically about end times. Um, if you read Matthew 24, um, you can look at that and you can say, if you study it historically, he's describing the fall of Jerusalem. And if, I mean, if, if you go read Matthew 24 and you go read uh, Josephus in the, in the fall of Jerusalem, I mean, it matches up perfectly. But on the other hand, we would look at Matthew with that and we would say, it's also seeming to talk about the end times. And so even there, there's a, there's a prophecy that seems to have a split reference. And both of them are really significant. So you've got to understand why is it important that he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem? You've got to, you've got to understand why, you know, why is that so important? And it's hugely important because, you know, because what happened in a sense that it was God ordained the fall of Jerusalem and it was, a, it, you know, it, was, it was a statement about how God's people had really totally gotten away from their faith, but it was also a destruction of the Jewish religious system that people would, be, would tend to go back to and that would keep them from Christ. And so you don't have a temple, you don't have sacrifices. And you know, so there's things that, all, that are really important. Um, if there are prophetic promises, we have to be careful not to too broadly apply the, the promises that were given to one group at a time to, to, to make it something that's to all people. Um, and I think I've, I may have shared this before, but a great example of this is I, I always remember somebody that I knew that her favorite verse was Joel 2.25 and I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten and uh, she would quote that all the time and whenever anything bad would happen she'd say well I know that God promised that God is going to restore to me the years the locusts had eaten and basically you know whenever any bad thing happened I'm going to you know I, I got a shit in the bank that God owes me one and, and that was basically her interpretation and so she would quote this now You've got to look at Joel 25 or 225. Is that what it's saying? Is this a prophetic promise to all of God's people of all time? And I would say no. 
Yeah, when you look at it in the context, it's talking about there's a judgment, and then after the judgment, the people repent. It's a promise specifically to Israel. Um, And, uh, you know, it's, you know, when we look at this and say, you know, if you claim the promise, you want the judgment as well? You know, I think people would be like, no, I just want the promise part. And, And again, this was not to a person, it was to a nationalistic people. And you have to look at this and look at, say, okay, let's look at promises that are given to, to people, to given us to, as individual believers. And um, so I'll just take one, John 16. Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will, uh, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. For as I've said these things to you, that you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, you know, we like to quote... Joel 2.25, God's going to restore the, you know, I don't like the, the, the promise of, in this world, you have tribulation. You know, and, you know that, one's, that one's not on a whole lot of posters, you know, that's just kind of, but the thing is, is that that applies to all of us. That's a promise to believers. Um, but we kind of cherry pick and we take a passage that is not to, not a general passage and we apply it generally and that's again, very dangerous. All right, lastly, and then we're going to get to the, the fun part, okay? It's uh, look for the Christological orientation. Um, and this is true in, in the Old and New Testament. You know, always look for Jesus Christ. The, the whole Testament is about Jesus. The whole book of the Bible is about Christ. Um, and so then again, we can look at certain themes, certain ideas, certain things that are taught even things that are, you know, that seem to be so apart from, you know, from Christ, and you look at it and you say, and again, sometimes, you know, I'll get people that talk about the Old Testament God and seems to be, you know, God of judgment, and you know, people like the New Testament, you know, Christ, and no, everything is about Christ. It all points toward Christ, and so we've got to, you know, God's always the main character, and specifically Jesus Christ. All right, so that's kind of a lot of there. Now let's get to the part that you probably wanted to come to, and that's apocalyptic. So. Special rules of apocalyptic uh, prophecy. Um, what we're talking about here is primarily Daniel, Zechariah, and Revelation. And there are certain parts of other places that might be considered apocalyptic, but it's primarily Daniel, you know, the, the second half of Daniel, Zachar- parts of Zechariah, and Revelation. Um, now, there is, a very, there is a uniqueness of apocalyptic literature. It is the most difficult part of the Bible to study and because it is a very, very distinctive form of literature that hasn't been written for 1,800 years by, by anybody, by any language, any culture. So it was, a, it was something that was, was, was big for a little while. It was something that had been written. And so the problem is, is when we try to read it, we try to read it and apply different sets of rules to it because it's really unnatural for us to read it. Because again, we don't, you know, especially if you, you know, you know, you're a young believer, you read it, and you just don't know how to read it. Because it's, you know, we, if we try to read it with the same, like a didactic, like Ephesians or something like that, you're gonna, you're gonna be a mess. Um, because it's a very, very different set of rules. Uh, one of the things that we've got to realize is that, it's, is that it reveals truth while intentionally concealing other truth. Look what uh, Revelation, how Revelation starts. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. 
He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So here is a revelation. It's very clear. The whole purpose is to reveal something, right? To, to, to make known. And what are we told here? It's a revelation about the things, to show servants the things that may, must soon take place. It, so it reveals. But what you've got to realize is the nature of apocalyptic literature is intentionally very, very, um, uh, in a sense, it reveals, but at the same time, in a sense, it conceals. That's incredibly symbolic. That it's, it's trying to teach something, it's trying to teach a main point through symbolism by trying to say, here's a, a, a main point, a big idea, but at the same time trying to hide the details. And that's the nature of how apocalyptic literature works. And so the, the challenge is, you say, okay, it's clearly it's written to reveal, but at the same time it's written to reveal at the same time through very, very symbolic uh, things where it's literally hiding the details. So challenges for us to figure out, okay, what is God trying to reveal and what is he trying to conceal? And so I want to study it and try to figure out, okay, where's the, you know, where's the meat here? You know, let me find the meat. Let's find out what's being revealed. And I want, to, I want to cling on to that. I want to hold on to that. I want to understand that. At the same time, I don't want to, get, I don't want to, I don't want to cling on to the bone, the things that are intended to be symbolic, that are, that are literally intended to be concealed. And so it's a, it's a very, very unique thing because it's, it's everything that's in there, it's not trying to, it's, it's literally trying to tell you something while at the same time trying to hide something. That's the nature of apocalyptic literature. Um, it's, it, there are some people, I, I, if, if you've read any of these books, you know, I, I apologize for about to uh, defend you, but um, I get really upset by some people that will, some of the books that are written about, it, about Revelation. And specifically, the ones that drive me crazy, that I really think are offensive, is that you'll find books that are out there that are like the Revelation Code, and, and here's this guy that figured out on this computer, and, and, and he found this certain code, and it tells you when, you know, all these secrets of Revelation that he found. Or, you know, this person that found this numeric thing, and he's cutting, you know, counting things out, he's found this secret code. And this idea that, you know, that, that we've discovered the secret which to me is incredibly offensive. This idea that it's, it's really saying that, that, that God meant to con convey something, but he hid it so well, so you know, it wasn't until this really smart guy with a computer can figure it out and, and could figure out what God tried to say, but he didn't say it very well, so it took 2,000 years for someone to figure it out. Here's what you have to realize. If there are certain things that we haven't figured out for 2,000 years, do you think there's a reason? <laughs> that's, that's one of the things that's so important when we come to Revelation. There are certain things that God is trying to reveal, and there are other things that God is intentionally concealing. And the problem that we get here is we, is we number one, we think that it's all Revelation, so everything there is, is trying to teach us something. And, and so we're trying to, you know, and what we tend to do is we try to read it more didactically. We try to, we try to read it very literally. Now, again, do I believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible? Yes, I do. But part of that means not only that you read it literally, but you read it literally according to the literature style. 
So again, you use the example of you know, the, the prodigal son. Jesus did not say that that was an event that happened. He said it was a parable. So for me to say that it wasn't an event that happened isn't denying the literal interpretation of the Bible. It's reading it according to the literature style. Now what we've got to realize is that Revelation is written to be figurative. So let's take Hal Lindsey. Um, I don't know if, if any of you have read, it, read the book or saw the movie, or, but I remember, I mean, he was talking about like, flying locusts, and, and he, he said, well, I mean, his, his understanding of that was that John had this vision of flying locusts that were spitting fire out of their mouth, and, and it must have been helicopters, but he couldn't have understood them, but they look like locusts to him, and that's, so he's literally interpreting it. Um, you know, that 666 was computer code, and so that was going to be the computer code. And, and he had all these things, and he's trying to literally interpret that and saying, okay, now we can understand, and we couldn't have understood before. And what you have to realize is that, again, some of it is meant to be figurative. Some of it is meant to teach us something where at the same time, if God would have, were trying to actually give us clues to figure this out, why would he make it so difficult? I mean, we look at the whole idea of the perspicuity of Scripture is that it's the understandability of Scripture. And why is it that when we think that we come to, you know, to Revelation, that, that God was trying to communicate something, but he made it so hard that nobody could figure it out, and we're trying to figure out what, what, what people couldn't figure out for the last 2,000 years, and we, we hope to do it. Um, see, again, here's what we've got to say is that some things are meant to be taken literally, some things are meant to be taken figuratively. When you come to Revelation, a lot of it is meant to be taken figuratively. That's the rules of interpretation. We interpret according to those rules. Um, now, that doesn't mean mythically. It doesn't mean that, you know, that, we, that, that it's myths. No, this is, this is literal truth, but it's communicated in a figurative language. So the, 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 the goal of interpretation is to figure out uh, the, the truths that are trying to be communicated through the, uh, you know, through, through the figurative description and literal interpretation of history. Again, it's not in, invention for creative license because we're called to try to follow the rules of interpretation. You're trying to say, what are the symbols? What are the symbols mean? What are the, what are the point that's trying to do here? But in that, what we've got to realize is we're saying, what is the intent, the original intent of the author and when we come to certain, there's certain things you say, okay, this is really confident. There's some things, the basic, basic rule is it's far better to admit, I don't know, or I'm not sure, than to try to force meaning on something. There's a lot of things that I, I'm going to say, I think this is what it means. There are some things that are going to be, you know, here's what I, you know, you're going to hear me say in a few minutes, you know, here's what, here's, here's what the main point is, whether this is, is, whether it's literally true or not, I'm not sure. But I'm going to, I'm, I'm, what I'm sure of is the figurative point. Um, but, you know, but there's, there's, a, there's an excitement about it, but there's also humility about a lot of things. The less clear meaning of the passage, the less dramatic we should be. You know, even when people, I remember, even when I was first interviewing here and people asked me about view of end times and, you know, I joke, I said, well, you know, I'm pan-millennialist, you know, I think it's all going to pan out at the end. And, and uh, you, know, you know, it's like, no, I have views, but the thing is, is that, you know, there's, there's some things that are not clear, but there are other things that are clearly taught. And what we have to realize is that we have to focus on the things that are clearly taught. Um, the things that aren't clearly taught aren't taught for a reason. 
Again, remember the, the fourth law of interpreting the Bible. Is that, is that the Bible is very precise in the way it's written. It's God's perfect and God's complete message to mankind. That again, if we were to look at that and say, if God were trying to give us who the Antichrist is, what year Jesus is coming back, all those things, he, he could have done a better job. Um, you know, I, I, I really believe that there's, there's a lot that's revealed. There's a lot that's hidden Some rules of interpreting it. Um, Okay, number one. Accept that the purpose is to give us a broad picture of the future and not the details. It's not a secret code to be filled out or figured out. Um, Again, if he wanted to give us the details, he could have done a better job. Let me give you even here that you look at it and you say, not only that, but even in trying to understand that, the First rule of scripture, or first rule, scripture interprets scripture. Part B is more clear passages interpret the less clear. Now let me go to a passage. We have all this discussion about when Jesus has come back, when the end times is, which is really interesting, right? Mark chapter 13, verse 32. But concerning the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know the time when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. So it's saying, you know, live with this anticipation, but it says pretty clearly, no one knows. Jesus said, I don't even know. Now, if you have a passage that's really clear that says, okay, don't know, I think it seems to be saying we shouldn't try to know. Okay, don't try to force interpretations on the things that we don't know. They're... There are some things God doesn't want us to know. And I really think the end times, you know, when he's coming back, he doesn't want us to know. I really believe that. Keep your focus on what is clearly revealed and resist the temptation to focus on what is veiled. Um, Because there are things that are clearly revealed. There are things in there that are, you know, it is a revelation. There are things that that are clearly revealed. But what we tend to do is we tend to like to argue about the things that are uncertain. And, and part of the worst thing is that a lot of times in our study of Revelation, we're spending a lot of time speculating about things that are unclear and we're, we're missing the things that are right there in front of us. So the question, what is the primary, let me ask you, the primary message of Revelation? If we start with this as basic thing, you know, what is the primary message? You know, what we tend to focus on is who the Antichrist is, when Jesus is returning, you know, reading the signs. Um, when you look at it, you say, if, you were to, if I were to sum up Revelation, it's pretty easy. It's saying in the end times, which started with Jesus' resurrection, up until his return, there's going to be a pattern. And the pattern is, is that there's going to be opposition. There's going to be organized opposition driven by spiritual powers. And at times, that organized opposition driven by spiritual powers are going to seemingly have great success. And they're going to, at times, seem like they're about to stomp out the church. And those who are in the church are going to feel like that they're without hope and that, you know, that all is done. And he's saying, don't be surprised when that happens. This was written before it all happened. God knew it was going to happen. So number one, don't be surprised. And number two, don't get discouraged because you know that at the end of the book, God wins. 
Now, the fact is, that's the primary message. And it's, a, it's, the, it's the split reference, the multiple reference idea that it's not just saying that at the end, it's saying that in this whole period of time, those things are going to happen. Now, is anybody discouraged about what's going on in our culture and feeling like there are spiritual powers that are ganging up against us and there's no hope? And we just are just going to hold on until Christ comes back. And you ever feel that? Do you think this is all relevant for us today? But what I want you to realize is the message of Revelation is not that you hold on until Jesus comes back because one day he's going to come and take you because we don't know when he's going to come and take you. If you thought, if we look at this and we start reading these end times and we think, oh, well, these end times, these are the end times. And so then we, we go into our little shell and we just hope to hold on. You know, we, we, you know, we set up this little castle and we kind of hunker down and hope that we can withstand the bombardments until the Jesus comes and takes us away. Is that how the early church did it? Is that what the call of us is? See, but you see, what you see is there's a danger here that so often that we can, you know, we miss the primary points, the things that are clearly revealed. We're arguing about the secondary things of who the Antichrist is and is Jesus coming back. And, and meanwhile, it actually drives us to the wrong behavior. It drives us to, you know, to become on the defensive and to say, instead of sitting there saying, you know what, we're on attack. And you know what? God set the church out, and when God set the church out, it was a whole lot worse than it is now. And you know what? God has conquered countries. God has conquered kingdoms. God has conquered cultures in the past. And he has called us to go out in the offensive and to continue to do that. And we're going to still keep fighting, and we're going to fight with the optimism and the hope that says that God can bring revival again. And we're going to keep going until he, he comes and tells us in person that this was the end. Now, isn't that different? Isn't that, that's a word of hope. Now, I don't know about you, but I, most of my study of Revelation, I don't walk away that, that motivated and that hopeful. And in fact, it's, I walk away, you know, very, it's very interesting, very, you know, but, but a lot of times it's almost like we're looking to see if these are the end times, and it's almost going back to 2 Thessalonians. Well, we're not going to work as hard because, you know, he's coming. Anyhow, I'm, now I'm preaching, right? Um, Look for the main idea while allowing that the details may be more figurative than literal. Now, this is, I'm going to, well, I'll get some interesting things here, all right? There's a main idea, the details are figurative. Now, that being said, I'm going to suggest that there may be times that the details may be literal as well, but that's not the main point. Let me take you to some, and, and again, I, I might... Um, let's go to description of, of, of uh, heaven. And, and, and I might step on some toes here of, of some different interpretations, but let me suggest it. Okay, Revelation chapter 20. Let me start in verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The cities were laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as wide, as high as it is long, he measured its wall, and its wall was 144 cubits thick by a man's measurement with which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city's walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first was jasper, second sapphire, third chalonade, the fourth emerald, and it continues on. Now, let me stop there. Is it saying that the Literal that the heaven is 120, what, 144 stata 
112,000 stat in length, width, height, it's a big square. And it, the new heaven and new earth, New Jerusalem, new yeah, new heaven or new, yeah, New Jerusalem. Yes, yeah, I'm sorry, Revelation 20. Yeah, thank you. Now, is it saying that literally? Here's what I want to say. I don't, I don't think it is. I think it's figurative. Now, it may also be literal, but it's primarily figurative. So when you have 12,000, throughout the Bible, 12 is, the, is you know, is 12 disciples, 12 tribes is with the group that God had chosen, and 1,000 is completeness. So 12,000 is a completeness. So it's 12,000 wide, 12,000 long, 12,000 high. What is it saying? It's the, the total completeness of God's chosen people. Is it measuring out the, the actual size? In my opinion, I don't think it is. I think it's making a figurative statement that's a whole lot more powerful than that. Okay, now let's talk about the walls. Let me ask you this. Why do you have walls? Right, protection primarily. Okay. Do you feel less safe in Akron, Ohio because we don't have walls? Is that a sign that we're, that, that we're less safe or more safe? Yeah. Do you, do you feel less safe because we don't have walls? Are we at risk? No. Or if it's on the opposite, the fact is we don't have walls in America because we're so safe. We have a level of security that we don't need walls because we're not under constant risk of attack. So what are the walls defending? I mean, why are there walls in heaven? Or New Jerusalem, okay, why, yeah, okay, yeah, I mix those up. But, but why, when you look at that, you say, are there walls? I don't know for sure if there are walls. But you look at it and you say, is it possible that it's trying to teach something? That in that time, in that culture, the great cities had great walls. Now, the reason they had them was for security. But you're looking at it and you're saying, heaven is this ultimate place of security. But in our time and in our culture, if you're right, in our time and our culture, it doesn't seem to make the most sense because we don't, now, is it talking about, I, I personally doubt that there's really a need to have walls in, in, you know, the new earth. I doubt that there's, you know, I don't think there's any threats that God's really worried about. I don't think, so you don't have walls for that reason. Is it possible that it's trying to speak something symbolic that's telling us about this grandeur of the city? So the greatest cities, Jericho was this great, you know, you have these great cities that have these great walls, and that defines the grandeur of the city. And these great walls are, are walls that are made of gems, you know, so they're walls that are made out of, you know, they're not built out of stone to be strong, they're made out of gems for decoration. Now, if they're walls or not, I'm not sure. But let's go back, I think even the, the, the best one is we go down and go verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each made of a single pearl. And the great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. Are there streets of gold in heaven? In New Jerusalem. Thank you. I keep saying that. Thank you. New Jerusalem in heaven. No, it isn't. It's coming to earth. I'm going to say, I don't think they necessarily are. There may be, there may not, but that's not the point. 
Right, here's the point. This is like awesome. This is, this is such an awesome point. When you look at this, this is so much better. When it's describing heaven, here's what it's doing. What is the most precious thing we have on earth? Gold. So yeah, so if you have gold and jewels, the most precious things that you have on earth, what is the most base thing that you have on earth? Dirt, right. So in that day, you made road out of dirt. And so it's saying, it's, it's saying, here's God saying, okay, let me describe heaven. All that I can do is describe the dirt. Okay, the dirt is your purest gold. And the fact is, I can't describe anything else because everything else you, don't, you can't even, you know, if you can't even imagine how good the dirt is, how do you imagine how good anything else is? I, I was reading um, C.S. Lewis, and, you know, and, and he had it in one of uh, the last... Um, Chronicles of Narnia, the last, last book of that, they were talking about the scene of heaven and they were talking about they ate this fruit and he said, you couldn't describe it, but, if, you know, but after eating this, that the sweetest thing on earth would taste like, like sour medicine. And, you know, and that's kind of this idea that all you can do, you know, people talk about, I hate, you know, it just drives me crazy when people talk about heaven. Oh, he's on the, you know, golfing in heaven or he's doing this or doing, you know. And, and the idea is that, I mean, heaven is not just a little bit better version of earth. Heaven is like, you know, we, we talk about heaven in such terrible ways. But you want to talk about what heaven is. is all, all I can do is to describe heaven. There's certain things I can describe what it is, in a sense. But ultimately, I think what God's saying here is, okay, here's the walls, the stones, those are gems. The gates, which are the wood, which is really baseball, those are giant pearls. And then the dirt, which is the road, that's the gold. So all I can do is describe, you know, what, what dirt and, and, and stones are like. After that, you know, the good stuff, you can't even, you don't have categories to understand it. Now, isn't that awesome? Isn't that, now when you look at that, that's, that's, how we, that's how we're called to read Revelation. Now, if you tell me, you know, you argue, well, streets are made of gold. They may be, I don't, but it really doesn't matter. That's the whole idea. It's, it's, it's you know, but that's not the point. It's not trying to be, Literal. It's not trying to be didactic. It's trying to be figurative. And it's teaching an incredible point, a main idea. And so let's get a hold of the main idea of heaven is beyond our description. All we can do is describe its dirt. And then allowing that there may be details that are more figurative than literal. Does that, does that make sense? Um, and there's a lot of other things we can go into this, even with hell and all these different things. And... Um, you know, so there's a bunch of other things that we can do. Um, okay, fourth principle. We should study the fulfillment of the prophecies fulfilled in the past to help us understand the prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the future. Now, this is something we kind of re- referenced a little bit beforehand. Now, this is especially true as it relates to Jesus and prophecies about Jesus, his first and second coming. Um, now, here's what I want you to think about. There were all these prophecies about the coming Messiah. And you had all these Jewish scholars who, prior to the coming of Christ, studied all the prophecies. They dedicated a huge amount of time and effort to studying the prophecies. However, when the Messiah came, no one got it right. And we have to ask why. 
In fact, I was reminded of this even just this morning because we were studying you know, the passage of, the, of Palm Sunday. And we had this whole thing in John, John 12, starting in verse 14. It says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it's written. And he quotes from Zechariah, uh, or uh, Zephaniah, I'm sorry, 9 9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. He's sitting on a donkey's colt. And then it says in verse 16, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, what is it saying? Even these disciples, they didn't get it. Nobody, nobody understood that this was a prophecy about the Messiah. It wasn't until after it was fulfilled, they go back and they're looking at that and they're saying, oh, that was fulfilled in Jesus. They, didn't, they, didn't, they, they looked at it and they didn't see it as even a prophecy. But, it, but when it was fulfilled, suddenly it was, oh, that was it. Then it made sense. Why? Because many of the prophecies, especially about Jesus in the end times, can only be understood or best understood when we're looking back when and after they're fulfilled. There were all these prophecies about Jesus that people only understood in part and only after Jesus came, then they're saying, oh, that's it. And I believe that, you know, again, if we look at that and if that's the way that prophecy has worked in the past, everything that we can see up till now, why would we expect that it's different now? If, and it goes again to this whole idea of the restrictive perspective of the prophet. If everything in the past, everything that we've seen, there weren't any, any times that people saw this prophecy and they're like, okay, we know this is going to happen on this date. We've got all the details. They were always surprised. They were always, it's, Jesus is the most clear one, but they were always surprised. It always looked a little differently than they expected and it only made perfect sense after it happened. My friends, why should we expect it to be different? So again, we, we have this, this you know, humility in the way that we view, approach the prophecy. And we recognize that we look at these things and we try to understand them. At the same time, I recognize that when it happens, there may be times, it's especially some of the difficult prophecies, when it happens, you know, whether the locusts are helicopters or not, I don't care and I don't, you know. But the thing is, is when it happens, I think I'll understand it. And I don't need to understand it until then. And because, because trying to understand it distracts me away from the main purpose. Last, last rule. Remember the fifth rule of interpretation, the main um, question to answer with every passage in the Bible is, so what? The Bible is by its nature very practical. And you know, so we look at this and you say, all of this is so very practical. And I'm gonna come back, and again, I'm, I might step on even a little toe here. And I remember, um, I remember talking to my sister who uh, was living in a different city. She was, you know, trying to find a church and they, they were talking about, well, we found this one church and, you know, they liked the ministries, they weren't sure about, and I was talking to him about the, the pastor and she said, oh, she's really big into prophecy and, and, um, and you know, long series on end times and revelation and, and I, I remember asking her, I said, well, let me ask you, what is the application? And she had a hard time thinking about it and then she came back with, well, because we believe that Christ is coming soon, we should be more aggressive about sharing our faith. All right, now is that, I'm not even going to ask you that. I'm just going to say, that's a terrible, terrible application. Because that implies that if I think he's not coming back soon, that I should be less assertive about sharing my faith. The fact is, I should be intentionally assertive about sharing my faith for every reason, and that should be way so far down on the list that if it adds anything to it at all, I should barely notice it. 
The fact is, I'm interacting with people every day that they might be gone like that tomorrow. I'm interacting with people every day that it's not about they have to go through the tribulation. Man, if they go through the tribulation and come to Christ, then praise God. I'm concerned about them dying and going to hell. And if Christ doesn't come back till ever and I don't share my faith because I'm, not concerned, I'm more concerned about the tribulation than hell, then man, I've, my theology is totally screwed up. And so you look at this and you say, it's always practical. And, and again, some of the things that we look at here, it, you know, we can get to speculation and we miss the practical, but if we come back to really understanding what the Bible said, the big messages, the big things, when, you know, we look at that and you say, even we talk about the streets of gold, when you talk about the biblical, the, the Bible has so much about hope. Man, we should be so, you know, the people say that we're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. No, the problem is that we're so earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. And we need to be a whole lot more heavenly minded. We need to be driven so that we're laying up for our treasures for things on, on heaven. And man, you know, so if I understand that, those are truths that change me. And every truth should change me. And so that when we study this, as revelation meaningful? Is it powerful? Is it significant? Yes, it is. Is it hard to understand? Yes, it is. Um, and we struggle with it, but we find these incredible truths. But the more that we unpack these incredible truths, the more we find they're not only interesting to know, but they're transformative in life. And, uh, and hopefully it's something that we're constantly not only learning to understand, but there are things that are saying, because I know these truths, because I understand these big pictures of how God's working, I see myself differently, I see God differently, I see life differently, I, I'm a different person. Um, because the Bible is always about change lives. So well, hopefully that's, it was a lot of all over the place today. Hopefully that was helpful. Um, I, you know, I guess I wish we had more time to get to open things up and talk more. Uh, but I've enjoyed getting to do this. So thank you for, for making the time to come out and, and join us. And uh, it's been a, been a joy to get to be able to, to teach the class. Uh, but let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the chance that we've had to spend this time together. I thank you again for each person that's here and for their commitment to, to become students of your word. Thank you for the principles in your word. Father, even as we come to these more difficult passages of, of prophecy and apocalyptic literature, and Father, to see that these things that can be so confusing, Father, are, are, are so real and so applicable and that continue to speak words of life. Father, I pray that you'd help us to, uh, to become men and women who, again, just fall in love with your word, not only understanding it, but applying it. And Father, that we, that we know your word and we're driven by it in such a way that changes not only we think, who we, how we think, but who we are. Thank you again, Father. We pray your blessing uh, on each person, not only today, but especially through this Easter season. We pray in Jesus' name.